0: In one world, you have 100 protocols, each of which have $1 billion staked. This is world one. In world two, you have $100 billion staked, which is restaked into all the 100 protocols. Which world is better? The benefit of world two is to attack any one protocol, you now need to attack the $100 billion. In world one, to attack any one protocol, you only need to attack $1 billion. The second world brings the benefit of pooled security. The first world doesn't. So what we are very careful about is convergence.
1: Hey everyone, Sam here. If you're like Dan and I, you probably don't pay a ton of attention to the institutional slash macro side of things in crypto and our laser focus on the degen shenanigans happening on chain. However, in order to onboard the first trillion dollars of capital on chain, it's incredibly important to hear from these institutional players and get them involved. That's why we're excited about hosting the Digital Asset Summit in 2024 in London, the land of tasty pastries. Be sure to join us at the event next year and we will tell you how to get 20% off your ticket a little bit later in the show. What's up everyone? Welcome back to another episode of 0x research. Before we dive into today's episode, a quick word from our sponsor, Hexens, the most hardcore security team in Web3, pioneering in ZK and novel cryptography. Hexens is trusted by tier one projects like Polygon, Mantle, Risk Zero, Lido, One Inch, New Bank, and more. Check them out on the ground at DefConnect, and be sure to mention Zero X Research when requesting a quote, and you'll get a free web WebTube pen test with the purchase of your audit.
2: All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. We have an interview episode lined up for, with the uh, gentleman from Eigenlayer today. So it's going to be an exciting conversation about some cutting edge technology getting built in and around the Ethereum ecosystem. Uh, we're joined by Ram, the CEO, and Shabik, the head of ABS Research. Uh, so doing a lot of the groundwork there on the R&D side of things so thanks a ton for for joining us today we've got an exciting conversation lined up um but again when we have these uh conversations about this really novel and nascent technology i think it's always best just to start a little bit high level before we tear back a few layers and get into the weeds of things. So you you launched back in June and already have over 200 million in TBL between about 21,000 unique depositors, which is a very, very impressive milestone showing some serious demand for what you guys are building. Um, But if we could just start from the top and kind of say, all right, we're building Eigenlayer to solve these subset of problems.
0: One way to think about it is imagine you're back in 1995 and you look at web application development in 1995. Um, you'd have maybe two options. You could go build a website. You know, most of you here are too young to know this, but you could go host a website on Geocity, which would be a static web page. You just have your homepage, put your photo up, something basic. You don't have to do much work to actually uh, do that.
3: But if you wanted to build
0: anything more complex, you want to store complex state, you want to have identity, login, payments, any of these things in 95, you would have to build everything yourself. You have to build your own server stack. You have to build your own own identities, payments. You have to build your own database stack. And then you build whatever thing that you actually want to build. So that's the state of web development in 95. If you look at it in 2023, that's absolutely not the case. What you would do is you would say, hey, I'm not building my own servers. I'll use AWS for a lot of it. You'll say, I'm going to use... OAuth for authorization, Stripe for payments, MongoDB for a database, and then, you know, focus on the really new thing that you're building. You know, a stat is that, like, pretty much, you know, an average consumer application uses 15 task solutions on the backend, right? Not one, not two. When people talk about, oh, you're going to have many layers in the modular ecosystem and you have to pay each of these. They haven't seen how web development works. Each consumer application there's 15 SaaS services in the backend. This is already the way the world works. So the the thing about these SaaS services is each of them think very narrow, very powerful, right? Just payments. I want to solve payments. I want to solve authorization for social. I want to solve something very, very narrow, but solve it in the most powerful way possible, right? You know, if you look at basically the arc of civilization, it's always bends towards specialization. And SaaS services demonstrate, you know, an example of that. And if you look at the crypto economy today, we are basically, you know, between 1995 to 2000. So if you want to go build an application which will fit as a smart contract on an existing blockchain like Ethereum, you could go ahead and do it, right? You could just go, like, customize your contract and, you know, deploy that. It's easy, it's simple, you know, but you're constrained into the, into the language environment, into the set of functionalities, into the gas limits, into the, uh, you know, uh, the particular distributed system architecture that, you know, underlies these systems. And then you could say, no, I don't need to do it. I can actually go be my own thing in, let's say, build a Cosmos chain. You have to build your own validator network. You have to build your own underlying token of value. You have to build your own tack and customize it heavily. This is open source software, you know, but software doesn't, Is not the same as just a bunch of SaaS components that you just choose custom parameters and integrate, right? So you have that, and then you can go and deploy it. So there is a powerful option, which is to go build your own chain. Uh, There is a less powerful option, just deploy a contract. But can we get to the SaaS-type world where, you know, there is a common place, there's lots of protocols on top, and an end-user application is simply concatenates a bunch of these protocols and then, you know, deploys it. So that's our vision for what we are looking forward to. And the, the first difference, you know, when you think about like the difference between the cloud era and the blockchain era, the cutting, you know, hyperplane, the dividing line is decentralized trust. So if you're running all these things, you know, any one of these components depends on a centralized validation. Then you lose the whole benefit of decentralized trust. So, in order to build the crypto economy, all of these have to be run on a decentralized trust network. And the the thing with security, security is the weakest of all the things that you depend on. So, our vision is shad security on the base layer. So you have you know the Ethereum validator set. EigenLayer makes it more flexible and more programmable. That's the base of trust. On top of which. Anybody can build permissionlessly new protocols as a service, right? So basically, you just write a protocol. You know, the the way you deploy a SaaS service is you, you, you write your code and then you send it to AWS and AWS takes care of everything, right? That's roughly the world that we want to build. You write your protocol, decentralized protocol, tip it to Eigenair. Eigenair takes care of where the trust is coming from, making sure that the trusted nodes keep to what they're needing to do. And then you can now start building, everybody can start building their own specialized, you know, highly powerful services. And then now you concatenate all of these services and then build an end user application. So that's the worldview and vision that we are actually kind of building towards.
2: That's awesome. And so what you're powering this from a security standpoint is with staked ETH and restaked ETH. So uh, just I mentioned that 200 million-ish in TVL. Uh, just looking at some of the statistics here and breaking that down, about half of that is Lido staked ETH. Uh, about a quarter of that is Rocket Pool and CB staked ETH. So Coinbase is uh, LST. And then the, that last chunk there, uh, the, the last remaining quarter is native, native staked ETH, which is a really interesting mix there. Uh, one question I have is what is it why only limit this to staked either? Because ultimately what this is really doing is just putting some um, like respected value at risk. It's sort of like, in some ways, it's kind of similar to a proof of stake chain, but what is like, why not open the door into a larger basket of assets? Uh, maybe like a USDC, or if you wanted to remove some of that centralization, maybe like a DAI, like what is it just about the ETH that kind of makes you excited to build around that asset?
0: I think the way we think about it is the. It's not so so important to whether it is ETH or USDC or something else, but it's important to build the category of asset on top of which, you know, the same stake powers all the different services. I think that is very important. The convergence is very important. It is because you know, convergence is what gives you pool security. So the way to think about it is. You know, you can have, so I'll give you two like different worlds. In one world, you have hundred protocols, each of which have $1 billion staked. This is world one. In world two, you have hundred billion dollars staked, which is restaked into all the hundred protocols. Which world is better? Okay, if you ask this question, then, you know, what is the benefit of world two? The benefit of world two is to attack any one protocol, you now need to attack the hundred billion dollars. In world one, to attack any one protocol, you only need to attack $1 billion. The second world brings the benefit of pooled security. The first world doesn't. So what we are very careful about is convergence. And, you know, the natural place, because we are building on Ethereum, we are aligned with Ethereum values. The natural place to build this on is Ethereum, you know, staking. And so that's why we are focusing on that as a kind of a natural shelling point. Because what we don't want, To have is some protocol saying I only take Steed, some protocol saying I only take like USDC, somebody saying I want to have bonds staked. You know, these will all happen in due course and time. But what we don't want to miss is that big chunk of stake, which is then shared security for all the different services. That is very important. So, not so much, you know, that's why I think, you know, even the word restaking is a misnomer. It's really permissionless, programmable staking. That's what we're building. When you're staking, right, you're normally staking into a condition that the protocol kind of enshrines into the protocol. And what we did is just break that open and say it's programmable and it's programmable permissionlessly. Anybody can come and program what the staking conditions are. And I think that is the core thing that we are building. So it's absolutely true that we could open it up to all kinds of assets. But it is basically this shared security versus dispersed security that we want to avoid. That's why we have the dual staking model where if you're building a new service, you can rely on, you know, some portion of security coming from ETH and some portion of security coming from your own. But we do want to keep that portion of like shared security coming from a common mm-hmm. pool. That that's what like makes this really parcel.
2: All right, everyone, I'm excited to tell you a little bit more about crypto's flagship institutional conference, the 2024 Digital Asset Summit in London. The UK's open regulatory environment has laid the groundwork for growing institutional adoption. Das brings together over 600 institutions that manage a collective $800 billion in assets. So there's no better place to hear perspectives on digital assets than straight from the world's largest capital allocators. This year's speakers lineup is fantastic, and we're going to hear insights on macro trends, RWA adoption and utility, the fluid regulatory landscape, the evolution of stable coins and more between the all-star speakers and the relevant topics das 2024 is a can't miss event for anybody interested in the growth and maturation of our industry hit the link in the show notes to secure your tickets and be sure to use the promo code 0x20 for 20 percent off i look forward to seeing you all at das london in 2024.
3: i had a sort of follow-up question to that concept of shared security right so today eigenlayer has deposit caps for Steak Deep, rocket free uh, cv and sort of native I guess there's two questions there. First, will we ever reach a point where there are no deposit caps and individuals can deposit as much as they want? And the second question is in that scenario, what if, for example, for some reason there's some market dynamics where like 100% of the restake thief was only like Lido's stake thief? Would you see that as something that is either problematic or requires intervention?
0: Yeah. Um... You know, these are complex, uh, uh, you know, uh, dynamics that we cannot predict. So it's possible that something like that happens. Um, And we have to steer the protocol. The, you know, Ethereum is, you know, as, as a protocol, I think Eigenlayer is somewhat different from Ethereum. You know, right now, for example, Ethereum wants that, you know, Lido should have a, in a good share, but not like more than a certain percentage. That's what Ethereum wants. But Ethereum has no tools at its disposal to actually like get that outcome. Whereas, you know, I think Eigenlayer, like the goal is to create a shared security mechanism for decentralized trust. So we will have over time mechanisms to shepherd this, you know, in, in, in various ways, because there's going to be like a decentralized governance process which can actually exert judgment on these decisions, because it is really, you know, from our point of view, the eigenlayer governance over time, as it becomes more and more decentralized and involves various stakeholders, has to balance the different sides of the marketplace, right? So we have stakers on the one side, we have node operators on the other side, we have services on the other side. And all of these three, actually, you know, you can even think of it as stakers, operators, and AVS, you know, service creators. AVS is this idea of, Validated service, which is anybody can build a new protocol. You can even think of it as like protocol as a service, right? Just like the SaaS economy in, in, in the cloud. This is basically protocol as a service. You can take your protocol, you know, throw it into Eigenlayer, and Eigenlayer makes sure that it's being run through the decentralized validation mechanism. But the these, these three segments, you know, stakers, operators, and AVSS are coordinating to offer a service to the consumer of these AVSs, right? Like imagine if the AVS is an Oracle, somebody's consuming the Oracle. Imagine if it is some other thing that is a different consumer. But the important thing is, I can layer governance serves as a place to coordinate between these different sites, right? So that is what the governance's goal is. And to maximize the long-term utility of this platform, you know, the governance has to engage in complex, you know, uh, negotiation between these multiple sites. And that's the nature of the platform. And, you know, in fact, we had already stated that this is the nature of our eigenlayer platform is whether, you know, when somebody is building an AVS or a service, whether they treat all liquid staking tokens equally is up to the service, Like right? that's, that's an example of how we let that side express its preference. You could say I only want 50% of the stake to come from C. Somebody could say that. Right? As if they're building a service, they have the power to express. Or somebody will say, I I don't care. I just need capital. Capital is capital. Right. But the the point is capital is only one side or one aspect of decentralized trust. Decentralization itself is another aspect of decentralized trust. And for a given service, you know, I've given this example before, but I I think it's a pertinent example. Imagine I'm doing secret sharing. I want to take a secret and then spread it into small portions that are held by different nodes. I want these nodes to be as independent as possible. It's not enough that they have staked a lot because, you know, what if they all meet in a private room and disperse that secret to each other? I wouldn't know. And to make it as collusion resistant actually having many distinct parties as possible who are normally not coordinating in any way is what brings us that property. And so somebody building an AVS might say, I, I want very, very decentralized nodes. And that's the right kind of thing that they should ask for it. So over time, like the, uh becomes a coordination mechanism for people to express these complex preferences and to actually, you know, that creates a certain derivative for, or certain pressure for certain amount of decentralization and, you know, and, It it depends whether people want decentralization or not. And if people are happy with their 30 nodes or like 100 nodes or, you know, maybe next year Lido becomes 1,000 nodes and that's good enough. We don't know. These are all complex dynamics for the marketplace to figure itself out.
2: What's up everyone? As we explore today's blockchain landscape, let's take a moment to recognize Hexens, the premier cybersecurity provider in Web3. Hexens is trusted by Tier 1 projects like Polygon, including a security review of the new Polygon ZK EVM, Mantle, Risk Zero, Lido, One Inch, New and more. Get a deep dive into your technology stack with the most comprehensive analysis in cybersecurity consulting. With over $55 billion secured, they cover everything from smart contracts to blockchain to web two pen tests.
1: There has been nearly $7 billion of total value hacked in crypto's nature recent history, so it's safe to say that your team has a lot on the line. Don't skip out, take your security seriously, and choose Hexens. Don't forget to mention 0 X Research for a free Web2 pen test with your partnership, and you can reach out to Hexens at hexens.io or find them on the ground at DevConnect. Without further ado, let's get back to today's episode.
2: So I want, I want to dive into kind of some of the interesting research you guys have done around the AVS landscape, but before we do that, one of the things you mentioned was kind of the parties involved in this um, in this dynamic here. So you have operators, stakers, and the ABSs themselves. Uh, I think stakers are pretty straightforward. And then AVSs are like these applications that are getting built on top of this technology. But can you expand a little bit on the role of the operator and what exactly that role entails, as well as who kind of plays that role?
0: Yeah. Um, I know you, you can think of, you know, internally, we think of Eigenmere as the coordination engine, the coordination mechanism for open innovation. So the the principle, the goal that you're optimizing is open innovation. We want people to be able to come and build complex things with very low barrier to entry. So innovate, because, you know, innovation is, I think, one of the most prototypical non-zero-sum games. It's, it's the way in which, you know, you you take something that, you know, that doesn't exist, you know, it's not a resource and then make it into a resource, like taking oil and making it into energy, taking, you know, air and making it into spectrum and so on. So, you have, you know, that's the goal to be the coordination infrastructure for open innovation. And um, if you think about the role of operators, right? So, so, so broadly, if you think about what is needed to build the coordination mechanism for open innovation, think about, oh, what are the re- who's bringing the resources? Who's bringing the capital? Who's bringing the ideas? Right? Like that's the three different components that go into. You know, the stakers are bringing in the capital to underwrite and promise that the service is working correctly. The operators are bringing the resources and the infrastructure to actually run these things, the computational infrastructure. And then the um, uh, services are, the, the AVS creators are actually coming up with the ideas and the code that actually make this work. And all these three are coordinating. They're working together. It's this code plus this stake as this node operations together is what makes the service. So again, they being the coordination mechanism for all these three sites to converge and then offer a service. So that's the core uh, core principle. So if you're looking at who can be an operator, an operator is a permissionless role in the eigenaer ecosystem. So anybody can be an operator. You can be a staker and you can be your own operator and you delegate to yourself. But, you know, you may you may be like, yeah, no, I already trust ABCD for some other purpose, you know, for custody, for some other thing that I'm already using, whether it's a Coinbase, whether it's a Figment, whether it's a P2P, like whatever is the kind of operator that you like, you already using them. You may say, yeah, I'm going to delegate to them. <laughs> and uh, the, the trust for delegation is not in protocol. So there is no mechanism that says that this delegate is going to be nice to you or not nice to you or anything like that. It's like, you know, you find like a service provider who is actually like trustworthy and then you give them to actually run your services for you. So that's the delegation mechanism. Other people can build more complex coordination mechanisms on top and you know we'll see some of them come up. Um, for example, there is uh, people building um, trusted execution environments on top of Eigenlayer. So you can run inside a hardware enclave the The software, you know, particularly a software we call anti-slasher, which basically simulates what the slashing contracts going to do and then tell you that, okay, you know if I sign this, I'm not going to get flashed. And this is run inside a trusted execution environment, that means that as a consumer, right as, as a staker, I can actually trust the a node operator without knowing who they are. So there are all these ways in which you can reduce the barrier of trust between stakers and operators. But this is a market mechanism. This is not in protocol for anywhere. So that's so the role of an operator is a permissionless anybody can you know volunteer to provide like nodes and run various services, and you could be your own node. You can delegate to somebody. Some AVSs, some services will have caps on how many nodes they want to participate because of you know if you're running a secure multi-party protocol, like the communication complexity depends on how many nodes and so on some protocols may have no limits. And so it's kind of taking them like a middle road between like the Cosmos approach of like in-protocol delegation to the uh, Ethereum approach of like, I, I don't even know if you're delegating. I know you're delegating and I want to bring out, so surface information and optionality. That is the eigenlayer view is you want to surface the information that these are different node operators. And then like as an AVS, you can decide you know, how to reward. For example, a a service may say, I'm going to cap like a per operator reward to like, you know, 5%, 10%, whatever that is. So that already drives different kinds of behavior. So you can have very sophisticated market discovery for
3: what kinds of things work as opposed to enshrining these in protocol. Gotcha, yeah, no, I think it's really interesting how like Eigenlayer seems very simple, yet at the same time, it's this very like complex coordination game. Between various different stakeholders, right? Um, and so, one obvious question that I have to ask is that governance is a very important part of coordination. And so, the question is how will eigenlayer governance work? You know, I think right now, at least for, let's say, dApps, we're very used to a one token, a one vote sort of governance model. And sort of what does that governance for eigenlayer look like, whether that's now, three months later, two years later? <laughs>
0: We are in early stages, so I I don't think we are in a position to di- dive deep into it. But it is something we want to give a lot of thought to about how to bring these different parties together. What are the inputs we need from these different parties? How to make sure that you know it the um, the coordination mechanism remains solid. So, but but it is too early to to do a deep dive. You know, hopefully can. No, no, i or somebody else can come back on and do a deeper dive on governance but it's too early for us to to talk about it it's it's in r&d right
2: now okay then that, that, that's fair and uh yes absolutely we'd love to have you back on to kind of dive into things we it's always a pleasure getting getting some of the the latest and greatest with eigenlater um but diving into the you know what can be built with this kind of side of things so uh, maybe shabik if you can give us a rundown of some of the cool research you've been doing on the avs side of things and what that landscape is looking like as well as some of the potential things that are either ideas at this stage or actively getting built
4: yeah so one of the major category of services that people like uh, people are trying to build is something called roll-up services so basically there are like various aspects of roll-ups uh, which You want like for which you can inherit security from uh, Ethereum via EigenLayer. So, for example, if you want data availability, so we are building EigenDA in-house, which gives like hyperscale data availability while uh, while uh, inheriting security from Ethereum at the same time. Then there is decentralized sequencing. For example, Espresso is actively building a decentralized sequencer by like uh, also having a dual staking model on top of uh, EigenLayer. So that's one more. Uh, there are like certain other protocols um, uh, certain other teams who are building bridges on top of igeland for example uh, lagrange they are actively building the outbound br- uh, bridging so that's a very cool project and uh, and uh, like they have consumed they are also trying to get consumers for of that bridge so uh, this, this is the aspect of the avs consumer side the fourth aspect that yeah that remains hidden from most of the discussion uh, but that's another category of uh, actor that uh, people we need to care in general and then there is a something called uh, fast finality layer basically in ethereum right if you want to get finality you have to wait for uh, two epochs in on average but can you can you get finality much faster so with Eigenlayer, you can get crypto, uh, like an crypto-economic crypto economic security uh, towards that kind of uh, fast finality. And so this is like a roll-up services. Uh, there is also, people are also building watcher networks. Uh, there's, uh, so there's this team uh, from Princeton uh, called uh, uh, Witness Chain who are building uh, a watcher network for, uh, g- g- for generating challenges to optimistic roll-up services if there is uh, malicious executions and, uh, and something, it's just one aspect, but there can watch an address for many other proposals, many other uh, protocols. Then people are building kind of applied cryptography oriented uh, applications like uh, FHE or secret sharing that Shira was mentioning. So uh, how to distribute shares across a decentralized set of actors and while also trying to prevent a collusion among them. Then uh, there has been like a recent uh, interest in, trying to run AI inference engines on top of uh, layer. So here you need to guarantee. So since it's a decentralized, like there are like a lot of actors who are running the inference engine. So you need to guarantee against program integrity. Like they're running the right model that you want. It's not like something other, some other model they are running with some other parameters. So there is this uh, program integrity you need. Um, so so uh, pr- people are building projects around that. So that'll be really cool, like how it, how AI and crypto can, like like the marriage between that AI and crypto, it'll be really awesome. And hopefully in future, people can extend it to fed, like federated training, uh, not having like uh, one entity do all the training and get all the models, but have data sets coming from different people, having a market model around data sets also. Because if, if you have data, you want to make money out of your data, right? You are supplying data to someone to train your model. So you want to make money out of that. So having like uh, economics around that, figuring out it will be really exciting
2: also. yeah, I love how there's a, a couple of different categories that you're all working around and the AI stuff is pretty interesting. The, uh, I just saw Akash, we recently talked to Greg Asuri and they're uh, training a model fully, de- on a fully, obviously on uh, Akash. So it's like a fully decentralized model being trained for the first time, which is super, super exciting. So it'd be really exciting to kind of see how this pairing between crypto and AI really evolves. But uh, one of the other interesting things you mentioned was what Espresso is doing with their uh, the dual staking model? Can you like zoom in on that specific example and explain what the dual staking model looks like and why this is really beneficial for Espresso?
4: So uh, in their dual staking model, so they have a, a different a parallel consensus protocol going on. And they call it Hotshot. So now in Hotshot, there can be two types of nodes. One is the uh, one is the e- native ETH staker nodes, and another could be their native token uh, nodes. So suppose you have put X, you have restake X8 and opted into into the, uh, Espresso, uh, into the Espresso protocol, you have some corresponding stake uh, uh, in uh, a stake weighted in the consensus protocol. If you have put X uh, native token of Espresso, then that will be like some um, stake weighted around that. And the consensus protocol will like consider that uh, stake, uh, weighted stake. And and whenever they, it's finalizing the, ch- uh, the proposed block, so it will consider that weighted stake as the like the value for deciding that it has the 66% threshold has been achieved or not on that newly proposed block. So this is the dual staking model at a, like an architecture level. So what is the benefit they're getting? So if uh, uh, with, with getting, by just having E3 staking, they're like, you can get benefit around like uh, if uh, downward spiraling of tokens. So it's a protection against that. So you want to protect the so there are two aspects. There's a protocol there is a token, right? Na- the native token of the protocol. So uh, you want to say, secure, say make the protocol safe. So you can use the ETH to make the protocol safe. And there's the token aspect of the protocol which like by using it as part of a dual staking, uh, you can like bring additional utility to that token. So
3: so both the benefits are there. Well, following up very quickly on that dual to- uh, token staking model, right? Um, sometimes it feels to me that value accrual in crypto is a zero sum game. You know, um, for example, if only used free stake deep, then all of like the sequencer profits would go to. Uh, for example, Espresso. And for example, if there was ten million dollars of sequencer profits between like the shared sequencer that connects, to, for example, Arbitrum, Optimism, then perhaps like only five million can go to Arbitrum, five million can go to like um whatever token Espresso chooses to use. How do you guys think about this sort of like value accrual problem with Eigenlayer or in like a generic like duo token staking model? So, when you have
0: a dual token, usually the native token is what is performing the governance on these systems right and you know you can ask what are the benefits of uh you know the first point is because you know that is the token of governance you could you can you can see that uh, over time, if there is you know no benefit in using dual staking, one can steer towards more and more towards a single staking model right. So one of the nice things about eigenlayer is it's not a binary switch. It's not like, do, do I need like single staking or dual staking? It's about like how much dual staking do I need? And, you know, you can say, yeah, I'm only giving 5% of my fees to like each staking. You know, it depends on what you're getting from it. Okay, so that's the first point. So because the governance token is the one that's going to have control over like how much fees is going to flow between these two quorums, Really, the value accrual is, you know, if you look at the long-term horizon, the value accrual is fundamentally towards the governance token. It is not towards any other system. So other systems are there only to the extent that it adds value to them, right? To uh, Whether Eigenlayer or something else, they're only to the extent that it adds value. And that's, I think, like the correct principle for building like open marketplaces is that to the extent that they provide value, they should be using it. To the extent that they don't provide value, they should not be using it. And The thing with the dual core model is, and then you can come to the question of why should somebody continue to use dual token model, you know, in the long run versus just use it as a bootstrapping mechanism. The firstly, there's value in it as a bootstrapping mechanism, right? So, you know, you want to get, you know, more economic security than you can afford by yourself. But there are also other reasons to keep the dual staking model. The uh, eventually, for example, Imagine that there's a whole bunch of services that you know a given application uses, and all of them have one 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 side of the of uh, security coming from each staking, and the same large like token commun- token um, stakers right restaking into all of these things. Then you know that to compromise that service, to compromise that particular application, you have to compromise that quorum that's needed. So you are actually, this becomes a crucial trust assumption that, you know, to compromise any of these, um, to, to compromise this application, I have to compromise this large ETH token quorum, not any of these separate token quorums, because just doing that is not sufficient to compromise the system. So you have this shad security benefit. So over time, if this shad security benefit is not adding up to what it is, say, yeah, I, know I don't need this shad security. I just saw my own way. Totally, that's that's acceptable. And so fundamentally, I think if you look at the value of the the future kind of value of the token, which is due to the future cash flows or profits or whatever, you know, the mechanism, I think it doesn't fundamentally change. I is just optionality to increase it and to also protect it against potential debt spirals. So one of the debt spiral of like, you know, endogenous staking is as your stake goes down in value and your, you know, the economic security goes down, people consuming your service may want to disconnect because you know, if economic security is what they were relying on in the first place, now it has less economic security, so less ability to support new applications. And as applications disintegrate out of the kind of service, you actually have a kind of positive feedback cycle in the negative direction, right? So you basically kind of can collapse. Whereas with restaking, you have like one side which is provided by each staking, and you know even if your go token goes down value, you still have each value, and as long as you're able to pay enough to compensate for the opportunity cost of that capital, you know people are not. Whereas in the in the native token core, and people are holding your token and getting exposure to the downward price moments. Whereas in this one, they just need to be paid for the opportunity cost of like restaking into your service. And so I think it is a protection against depth files that may occur in protocols. It's a protection. It, it, you get the benefit of shared security if one quorum is common across all the different services. You get all these benefits. Over time, you know, if those benefits are not significant, uh, you, know, you may start getting composability benefits. right? So Because all of these are in common trust trust zone you know, an application will be much more interest you know interested to integrate because it's a common trust assumption to integrate with all these services. So, you know, these are the benefits that you get by sticking to Eigenlayer in the long run, if it takes off, right? So that's that's the answer.
3: Yeah, I think it's really interesting how, like, Eigenlayer can also act as, like, a backstop there. And I think it's uh, important to remember that AVSs, like, do have the power to sort of choose how much, like, if it's contributed uh, as shared security to the value of the network, right? And there's another interesting point you mentioned there that if it, for example, doesn't make sense for a middleware protocol anymore, then they can stop using eigenlayer at any point of time. I wanted to ask the opposite question of that. Is there like a service level agreement for how long a validator has to secure a protocol leveraging eigenlayer, or can the validator stop securing it whenever they want? Um, thinking of like a slightly ridiculous example, like there's a large Oracle protocol, they do something that's like really malicious, um, or they did something that's like really bad socially in like the real world. Um, and then all of that is to say like, that's not good behavior. I don't want to align with that anymore. I'm going to put out on right now. How, how would something like that play out?
0: So right now, our mechanisms are instantaneous, which means you opt in, you have like a service period or an unstaking period, you have to stay for that period, but... Beyond that, you don't have to stay. Uh, but we are already doing R&D on longer term commitment. So I stake, and then I make a promise that I will stay not only for like this period, but also for a much longer period. Why would I do that? Now you would give me additional APR or whatever, because, you know, you need some amount of to stick with you through like, you know, the the, the good and bad. So... You can actually have these, you know, mechanisms programmed into, I uh, mean, already like out of protocol, but, you know, will start giving more and more functionality in protocol for these things.
4: It is somewhat similar to reserve bandwidth in Amazon EC2. So it's like reserving security for a longer horizon.
0: Yeah. So so the idea there is that you... Um, When you stake, you make a commitment that you're not going to withdraw for some amount of time from these services. And so by making this additional commitment, you get additional payment. And uh, in in an out-of-protocol, out-of-eigenlayer way to do this is to say that you're giving rewards asymmetrically to stakeholders who have been around in your protocol for longer periods. So that creates positive incentives to, to remain. But through eigenlayer, you can also, if it becomes enshrined in protocol, you can also enforce that you cannot go anywhere else. So that is, you know, these are uh, things under research, but over time they can be done. Uh, to answer your other question, which is whether validators don't like somebody and then they can uh, unravel. Uh, I think that this is not the default uh, type of thing that we expect to happen. The the thing that we expect to happen is um people unstake because there is a more uh, lucrative staking opportunity. And we think actually restaking lessens this kind of like a dynamic because, you know, you don't have to choose between staking to service one versus service two. You're staking to all the services that you actually want. So you're not choosing between staking to service one versus service two. So your capital is being allocated across all of these services. The, so the dynamic with eigennas is if you're operating costs, if you're not able to make fees more than your operating costs, then you absolutely will opt out, and I think that's the right thing you should do because like why are you wasting your time and energy doing something that does not is not worth your while and so but that is a very different uh, level of when you will opt out than if if it's just like a race between hey I, I have like thirty two eat steak. I have to choose between Dan's protocol and Rand's protocol and Shavik's protocol. Like that puts me at like, Oh, Shavik's the most profitable, screw Dan and Rand. Right. Like that is exactly what we don't want. That's what restaking. I mean, that's why I think Shad security is the right framework for thinking about it rather than, you know, restaking. The idea is that I have a pool instead of like securing you know, 100 million to Dan, 100 million to Rand, and 1 billion to Shovik because Shawick's more attractive. I'm going to kind of like put the 1.2 billion in all three of you. So, you know, all of us are better off.
2: Could you still elaborate a little bit more on like exactly how that mechanism works? Because, like, I don't think I'm following how, you know, one deposit equals, you know, I'm securing as like a pool versus an individual operator or an individual ABS, I would
4: say.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, you know, imagine there's like, like simple numbers, like 10 billion and 10 billion is, you know, and there are 10 protocols. Right? There are two different models one can imagine. You know, and there are 10 protocols. Each each protocol gets allocated its own like sub pool Says, oh, you know, there's 1 billion securing that protocol, that 1 billion securing this protocol and so on. And, you know, they, they have no like relationship with each other. This is one model of the world, right? In this world, To attack any one protocol, I need to acquire a capital of, you know, half half of 1 billion, and then go and make a profit more than the half of 1 billion, because I'm going to get slashed for that half of 1 billion, right? But in the pooled world, what happens is I have $10 billion stake, then every staker is restaking into every service. That's what it means by shared security, is every staker is restaking into every service. This is not a default or a requirement in Eigenlayer, but If this happens, you know, this could happen because people want to, you know, participate in many services. And If computational bottleneck is not limiting them, they will restake into many services. So if they restake into many services, what's happening is that every staker is restaking into every service. So if an attack happens on service one or service two or service, any one service, I'm going to be able to slash, that service will be able to slash, you know, all the violators which could be more than $5 billion. So that is what I mean by pooled security is to attack any one thing, you have to attack the collector. So this is stronger together, right? It's exactly like, you know, how nations kind of like cities come together into a nation and like the nation is stronger together because you have to now attack our army for the entire nation rather than my own like cities are, right? The thing that happens with this kind of pooled security is you're missing out on attributability let's go to the previous example let's say dan had like 100 million dollars stake ren has 100 million dollars stakes and shobik has like 1 billion dollars stake now i create a pool and this pool has 1.2 billion it seems like it's a good deal for dan and ren but somewhat worse deal for shobik because he had 1 billion separately now have, he has 1.2 billion shared between these these three individuals right the thing is in version 1 of our protocol we have no attributability. Like Ethereum has no attributability. No blockchain today has any attributability. That, for example, in Ethereum, if you know there's a double spend in Ethereum, and you know Uniswap got asymmetrically attacked, or only Uniswap got attacked, or only Coinbase got attacked, doesn't matter. Some in some party got attacked. Now, the the slashed funds are just like burnt indiscriminately. It's not compensated to Coinbase or to Uniswap. Specifically. So there is no attributability. And that's how eigenair V1 is. eigenair V1 is it doesn't matter who triggers slashing. The condition is verified. And if that condition is correct, all the staker's fonts are burnt. Right? So it's basically like indiscriminate. It doesn't, it's just like, you know, it it harms the attacker, but there's no specific like uh, redistribution to like dance protocol or Ren's protocol or Shawik's protocol. So it is kind of smudged into a pool. Uh, in V2 we have like upcoming mechanisms which actually solve this problem. Where well, what you say is you have a pool of $1.2 billion stake, but Dan Bison, so the slash funds are not like just burnt. Maybe some portion is burnt, but some portion is redistributed. And how it's redistributed is based on slashing priority that Dan bought and Ren bought and Shavik bought. Maybe Dan bought a slashing priority for 100 million. Ren bought it for 100 million and then Shavik bought it for 1 billion. And the total slashing priority sold is less than the total amount at stake. So essentially, you can get the benefit of attributable security. You have your one, you know, 100 million to slash and Ren has his 100 million to slash and Shorvik has his 1 billion. But to attack any one protocol, I still need to attack the collective. So you can get the benefit of pool security and the benefit of attributable security all in one. So we we think this is simply like superior to anything out there. So this is actually the right way to build shared securities.
2: I appreciate that. That makes a ton of sense now. And Is it is it opt-in for the depo- uh, the stakers saying, okay, okay you know, Shavik has this great protocol, this great AVS. So I'm, I'm interested in actually uh, helping secure that with my stake, but Ren, it's a shitty protocol. I want nothing to do with it. So, like, can I opt-in as a staker?
0: So, the staker has opt-in to, like, which subset of services they are securing, but then how to allocate the insurance or slashing priority is not up to them. Because, you know, your commitment is you're a stakeholder, you're opting in. If you you do something bad, your money will be taken away. That's your commitment to the protocol. It's up to the protocol to figure out like how to take all this money, allocate insurance to
3: different parties. So that's that's up to the protocol, not to you. So on the topic of slashing, I had one question. You know, there's a few ideas of AVSs out there. One of them is the fast finality chain where you get like it settles, uh, settles optimistically on Ethereum, and it verifies it through zk proofs and arrives at consensus within seconds. Um, and another thing that's enabled, sort of, through Ethereum inclusion trust is is single slot finality, and both of these things are sort of like within a block things, um, for lack of a better term, on Ethereum mainnet. Um, so my question was. When someone is slashed on EigenLayer, how long does it take for Ethereum to know that that has happened? And for these like AVSs, which require what I would kind of define as like low latency within a block, uh, confirmation of like security, so to say, is that like a potential problem if the slashing like um if the slashing event takes a long time to like be transmitted to the base layer? The
4: slashing, the the, sla- the all the AVSs in uh, EigenLayer, they're kind of optimistic in nature, so. Whenever a task is uh, done, so there is a a challenge window, and uh, within that challenge window, anyone can raise a, uh, put a put a submit a proof that something malicious has happened, and if that is passed, then the person, then the particular operator gets uh, like slashed. So this, the moment the challenge window, like the moment someone has done put up a successful challenge, that moment itself, this slashing, like uh, that slashing gets finalized so that's the that's the like a uh, basic model but we have something like veto committee which vetoes the slashing which introduce uh, like certain other delay that veto committee has to check is the slashing request being uh, like uh, is the challenge uh, uh, the slashing that is being requested is it correct or not uh, based on like if there is a software bug or something maybe that's the reason that's why uh, something like slashable event has happened so the, the so this is so this is the additional delay so this additional delay that we are introducing like we'll keep it as at a level where which is acceptable to most of the like uh, to the stakers because at the end of the day this veto committee is acting as a safety net right for their protection against some kind of software bugs or something like that so if so in a manner of speaking you can say that it's instantaneous Uh, the slashing is instantaneous the moment when the successful challenge is done but we introduce a small delay uh, which would be acceptable in return for the safety
3: net I guess I have a quick follow up question to that Um, for these like uh, ABSs which sort of require Ethereum inclusion trust for example single slot finality would that require a super majority of restate to achieve that or would it not require and if it does require like a super majority of free stake to achieve that, what happens if, for example, like it starts above that super majority threshold and then like it just fluctuates like below and above and below?
4: So yeah, the Ethereum inclusion trust, you're right, there's a quality of service that's uh, that's dependent on like how many uh, stakers or the Ethereum validators have opted into that particular service. So for example, if we are... Uh, if we look into event event driven activation, so suppose this service says that uh, if your collateral is underwater, they will fill it up they will trigger a transaction they will fill it up if only let's say five percent of the stakers or validators are opted in you this service is very bad like once in twenty blocks, maybe someone will come and fill and by within that twenty block, you might be under collateralized you might get liquidated so it's very bad service so you want say eighty ninety yes so that's 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 a that's a caveat with the Ethereum inclusion trust. But There are certain ways how you can get around that. Like for example, uh, uh, you can you can have the uh, you can have the DApps execute transactions only if they are signed by a uh, by a, a pool of economic trust takers uh, outside the outside the Ethereum. So there's a service uh, who says that oh if this transaction we have attested to this transaction and only then the dApps execute. Now, who are these people who are running uh, running this, like attesting to that transaction? They could be the eigen layer of validators uh, and they could have economic trust that, they are, they, that I'm putting my stake to attest to this transaction uh, after doing some due, due diligence or some check. And so that's a way to get around the problem of economic, like the problem of like high... Optin is required in the, econo- uh, in the Ethereum Inclusion Trust, so that's
3: uh, that's that's one way. Yeah. So you mentioned like it seems like there's a lot of like inherent network effects um, in terms of the number of validators for these Ethereum Inclusion Trust ABSs, right? Um, and I know there's other research reports that you guys have written out, for example, like MEV Boost Plus, which is the whole idea of like partial block auctions, and MEV Boost Plus um, Plus eliminating the trust assumption of the relay and at that point it kind of seems like there's a lot of these abs's which benef- which would benefit greatly from a large amount of stake thief that's currently staked at the base protocol layer being restrictive um so the obvious question that i think is also a hot topic right now is enshrinement of eigenlayer right um at that point how do you guys think about enshrinement layer given all of these like sort of ethereum inclusion trusts and what does enshrinement of Eigenlayer mean to all of these stakeholders, right? Whether that's the current people that have opted in into Eigenlayer, the people that have staked their LSTs into Eigenlayer, or for example, even investors.
0: To understand what the implications are to the various stakeholders, you know, first we need to know like what is what are we talking about by when we mean enshrinement? What does it mean? What things can theoretically get enshrined? What things cannot get enshrined? There's a lot of like nuance to this. Um, the uh, starting point of this is to understand that uh, you know the uh, so first, like why would we want to do it? You know, enshrinement? I think maybe that's a good starting point. Is if there are certain things that you can do if things are in protocol that you simply cannot do if they're out of protocol. That's a kind of a good reason to think about insurance. Um, One example of where that, that is the case is this notion of, you know, Ethereum inclusion. Is if you wanted like include transactions into a block and you want to make a promise, with EigenLayer you can only get that to be crypto economic, right? The, the idea being that you know you will lose your e if that that inclusion condition is not. Valid. Whereas if you make it in protocol into Ethereum itself, then it's possible that other people can verify that you've satisfied the conditions that you need to satisfy. So that gives a higher bar of trust than what, you know, out of protocol can give. So, yes, yeah, so there are some situations where, and en- so enshrining makes sense when you get more powers by being like default part of the protocol versus not a default part of the protocol. Um, and this is an example, Ethereum, like, inclusion guarantees. If if you just take this, and this would be, like, amazing over time to figure out, you know, how to enshrine some of those into Ethereum, uh, there's a lot of complexity in, in this. For example, how do you specify an inclusion condition? How much, like, how do you meter whether the gas for, whether all the inclusion conditions have been satisfied? Because, you know, you move from one of the reasons Ethereum has uh, like this user driven model is you only pay fees for what is actually being used. But if you had inclusion conditions, which are theoretical, which means you have to check them, like whether a limit order has been paid every time, who pays gas for it? What is the gas model? How do we make sure that Ethereum has enough like bandwidth and cost to actually, you know, to, to check all these traditions on a persistent basis? There is a lot of complexity in, in these things and what's the language and semantics in which it's done. So, one, it's theoretically possible to envision in like a five to 10 year period that you, know, you can actually create like complex ZK proofs that you've satisfied all the conditions that need to exist. But ZK proofs cannot be done for things that are not provable. Like, for example, I have, I have to include any transaction sent by Dan in the mempool. Let's say that's the inclusion condition. Like, you know, how do you know the transaction is in the mempool or not? So I think this is such a complex thing. Even we're just focusing on Ethereum inclusion trust. Like there is a complex topography of ideas and, and, and conditions under which these things work. So I think the right mechanism is these things get tested in out of protocol. And then, you know, when things are working well, but you can add a lot of power by making it in protocol. That's, in fact, what we do envision is even for Ethereum inclusion us, we we'll find narrow use cases, which are really powerful, but are not like complex. And those get enshrined rather than some very general purpose thing, which we don't know how to meter, how to cost, how to make sure that the complexity is contained, how to make sure that programming errors. Like, you know, here's one thing we can do out of protocol, which is very difficult to do in protocol is like a slashing veto committee. Right, it's a subjective committee. Like we starting with small group, but you know we could expand the group size over men. But the problem is, if you want to make it in protocol, and anybody can opt into all these like complex inclusion conditions, and imagine they opted into something crazy, and then like every everybody's stake blows up, that's gonna be a disaster, right? Or Ethereum Star, you know, is affected because you know you're checking for some inclusion condition, but the inclusion condition creates a deadlock you know, there are all kinds of crazy things that can happen. So, you know, so this is just for one dimension, Ethereum integration plus. We are building a platform, like I said, which is very, very generic. You want people to use this for AI, you want people to use this for secure multi-party computation. You want people to use this for all these crazy things. So, you know, we have to take steps, you know, one step at a time to understand you know, what What are possible. But we are, that's, we are very, very open to things that are more powerful being native in Ethereum. And this is, you know, a, it fits with like Vitalik and EF's thesis of minimum viable enshrinement, right? You don't want to go so complex that you're going to enshrine everything. You're going to go choose a point where it is, you enshrine the things that if they're in protocol, they're so much more powerful than if they're out of protocol you know, So that is really the kind of thing that we envision will happen. But, you know, the reason we are not so worried, you know, you mentioned various categories of people that, you know, what happens to stakeholders, what happens to operators, what happens to services, what happens to us, you know, our investors or something. We're not so much worried about the last thing because, you know, we invented this category. We are building lots of use cases that will consume you know, shared security in a way that simply, you know, other people may not understand how to use. So we'll have things to do. And I've our vision is positive thumb games. You know, the better the coordination mechanisms, the better the innovation that we can build, the sum total of what we're building as a society, as a community expands. And that's what we care about the most. So, you know, happy to see like any aspects of our protocol become part of
4: it here
2: okay that makes sense yeah I, the idea of enshrinement it, it was always like tough for me to understand just because of that exact point of like you know this at the end of the day it has to be a business and it has investors uh, but if you're focusing on kind of like the avs landscape and saying hey like nobody's better qualified to build the best things than the people who have built the the underlying layer I, I, that makes a ton of sense to me as well um and so maybe just as a uh, working towards the close here, it's kind of we're coming up on an hour um, when can we expect to see some of these AVS uh, protocols go live? I, I know you have a, an interesting relationship with Mantle, the L2 launching on Ethereum, uh, that's going to use EigenDA. So just wanted to get your take around that, of like when we can expect to see some of these really exciting AVSs hit the market.
0: Yeah. Um, right now, uh, we are, uh, you know, on the mainnet. there's only staking, right? There's no delegation, no operation, or services. So we are working towards a test net sometimes the squatter which would be which would basically be a public testnet where we have you know all the sides of EigenLayer and eigen da running so that would be a major milestone on the public testnet and then you know a few months after that will hit the mainnet so that brings in like avs node operators EigenDA, everything together this whole complex marketplace uh so we are working uh, hard on on getting that ready but that's that's the roadmap is, you know, this quarter we'll get the public testnet and Q1, you know, or Q1 to Q2, we should mean
2: it. Fantastic. I know that's everyone's least favorite question. So I, I appreciate you tolerating it, but uh, Sriram and Shavik, this is an awesome conversation. I really appreciate the both of you coming on to, to jam on all things Eigenlayer. And like you mentioned earlier, we'd love to have you back on when uh, the governance gets a bit more uh, closer to being live and, and we can really jam on the inner workings of, of the design. So maybe Sriram, I can leave it to you to kind of uh, leave the audience of where they can find more about Eigenlayer or point to some of the exciting research your team is building.
0: Yeah. Um, You know, the best place to um, discover what's going on is please follow our Twitter handle, at Eigenlayer. What we're doing over the last couple of months is starting to write a bunch of, like, blog posts. So, you know, that's on blog.eigenlayer.xyz, which explains, for example, the most recent one is on the inner workings on Eigenlayer. Shawweek and team brought up another post on, you know, 15 AVS ideas for what things you can build on Eigenlayer. So all these posts are super helpful. If you uh, have any thoughts or ideas, you know, you can comment on some of them on the forum.eigenlayer.xyz, which is our research discussion
3: forum, and we'll we'll look at it as a team. I'll put a plug here for Eigenlayer. Their research is some of the best out there and they just announced the Eigenlayer Research Fellowship one week ago. So if you're really interested in contributing to research at Eigenlayer, definitely go apply for that. It sounds like a really fun job.
2: I love it. Thanks a lot, Ren. and Sriram, Shubik, this has been great. Cheers, guys.